today's scripture reading comes from Ephesians 3, 1 through 13. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have, I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power to me, though I am the very least of all the saints. This grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for angels in God, who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he was realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boundless and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. This is the word of the Lord. Be seated, please. Well, good morning, everybody. I'm uh, Andrew, and I'm one of the pastors here. And my hunch is that some of you know what a meme is. Uh, maybe some of us don't. But I, I, have you heard, this is kind of a common one. It's the what people think I do meme. I don't know if you've seen this before. But I found one for pastors, and it starts like this. Okay, I've broken it up. So here's what people think pastors do, right, shepherd. Here's what a pastor's friends think they do. Here's what a pastor's congregation thinks that they do. Here's what a pastor thinks they do. But here's what they actually end up doing most of the time. <laughs> and you can do this for just about any job or any stage of life, uh, but you could also do it for Christians, for Jesus followers more generally. And so imagine with me, ask yourself, uh, when you tell people in your life, especially those who perhaps aren't Christians or aren't churched and don't know that world, when you tell them you are a Christian, imagine what image comes to mind for them. What do they think Christians look like? So when you tell this person, oh yeah, I'm a Christian and I'm a part of Christ's community, do they imagine that you just attend a free concert once a week, and that that's what it looks like to be a Christian? Or do they imagine, oh, you're in a mild to moderately toxic cult that controls your life, and that's 
what it means to be a Christian? Or do they wonder, oh, you mean you go to like the equivalent of a self-help conference in a building that doesn't pay property taxes? And on and on that list could go, right? We could, you, could, uh, you could keep brainstorming that. And then ask yourself, okay, if I ask you for those who are Christians in the room, who, can, who are Jesus followers, what do you imagine when you hear the word Christian? What does that look like to you? Is that a classroom where people are, are listening and there's someone teaching? Or is it a comfy couch with other people that we really like? Or is it like, you know, a Dunkin' Donuts, but, but all the donuts on the coffee are, are free in this case? See, if we actually took the time to, sit, like, to shout out our answers and We'd probably come up with a lot of different stuff, and that's interesting, but here's what I want to know. Here's the question I am wrestling with. What does God see when He looks at His church, His people? What image comes to mind for Him? What would that be? And the reason I'm asking this is this is where the Apostle Paul is pointing us in our text that we just read a few moments ago. So, Paul just by way of reminder, uh, was an apostle of the early church in the first century. And he wrote this letter that we now call Ephesians to local house churches that met in the city of Ephesus and perhaps uh, surrounding cities as well. And there are not very many of these Christians at this time. And and, and compared to uh, the might of the Roman Empire in which they lived and the influence of the Greco-Roman culture, like how the waters in which they swam, they probably felt pretty small and pretty insignificant compared to all those things. So, Paul writes them this letter, and right here in chapter 3, he actually starts a prayer. He's going to start praying for them, but then he interrupts himself. It's like before he can even pray to God on their behalf, he needs to remind them exactly who they are in God's eyes and no one else's. And he points to three things here that I want us to see together. So if you have your Bible with you today, turn to the book of Ephesians. Use your table of contents if you need to. That's fine. We're in chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Let me reread the first couple of verses here for you. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, then he interrupts himself, Assuming that you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to, uh, to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I've written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Now, I tried to highlight on the slide and even in how I'm speaking, uh, what Paul is emphasizing here. But Paul talks about a revealed mystery several times in these first few verses. This is really important to Paul, this idea of a revealed mystery. Now, what's interesting is in the modern world, in modern English, when we use the word mystery, we tend to mean something that we cannot know. A mystery is something we cannot know. Like, it's a mystery what ultimately happened to Amelia Earhart. We cannot know. Or it's a mystery why the Chiefs lost to the Bengals last year, even though they were up 21 to 10 before halftime. It's something I'll never know or understand, right? It's just beyond my capability. In, in the ancient world into which Paul's writing, a mystery was more like privileged information. It was more like a secret. It was something that a few elite 
spiritual people might know, like a prophet or a seer or uh, a fortune teller. And if you were deemed worthy, if you proved yourself, you might be clued into that mystery. In fact, we know that there were whole religious cults built around that idea of mystery in the Greco-Roman world at this time. And, uh, and to a certain extent, you could look at groups like the Masons or the LDS Church, and they function that way too. There's, there's, there's certain things about them, what they believe and what they teach, that you cannot know until you're initiated in. It's the way it works. Paul, for his part, challenges both the modern and the ancient ideas around this word mystery. He says, God has a mystery that no one could ever know, but He's revealed it now to everyone. And what is that mystery that Paul's talking about? Verse 6, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Now, if you were here last week, you heard Pastor Tom share a little bit more about the uh, Gentile inclusion in the early church. If you didn't catch that sermon, it was really, really helpful. So it's on our website. Please watch it. But remember that it was a world-shattering revelation from God. Tom was adamant about this. It was a world-shattering revelation from God that the Gentiles, which is the Hebrew for the nations, who did not follow Jewish law, were to become a part of God's people through faith in Jesus. This was a, a mind-bending revelation that these Gentiles did not need to be circumcised. They did not need to eat kosher. So controversial was that revelation to the early church, this mystery, as Paul calls it, that the, the, most, the, the, the biggest conflict among believers in the first century was around that very idea. You could say that the first doctrinal disagreement that the Christian church ever had was about Jews and Gentiles, and a council is actually formed in Acts 15, and it was all about this question. You can read about it there. But Paul was adamant, and the church leadership agreed that this is the mystery God has revealed, is that Gentiles do not need to become Jews in order to be Christians that God was doing something radically new and different in history. That's why in verse 5 of Ephesians, Paul reminds the readers that all of the apostles and prophets, which is, you know, that's the leaders of the early church, they all agree in the Spirit, by revelation from the Spirit, that this is the case, that the Gentiles are now included in this radical new way. But this, but this is actually Paul's point in calling this a mystery. Here's why he says that. It's because nobody, and I mean nobody, saw this coming. No one predicted this. Paul, if you remember, himself was not a Christian for most of his life and was actively killing Christians, actually, uh, before he got knocked flat on his back by the risen Jesus in Acts chapter 9. And then pretty quickly after that, Jesus revealed to him that his unique calling in life, his unique mission in the church would be to take the message of Jesus to the Gentile world, to tell the Gentiles that, yes, the Jewish Messiah is actually for everybody and after everybody, that the gospel message of peace with God through Jesus was for the Jews, yes, and the Samaritans and the Romans and then to the ends of the earth, for everybody, 
And the Ephesians, these, these little house churches reading this letter, Paul says, you are a part of the mystery being revealed that's knocking everybody's socks off because the ancient world was blown away by this, had no category for the kind of ethnic diversity, cultural diversity that Christianity had in the ancient world. And this should matter to us too because, hey, I see a lot of Gentiles in this room. That doesn't mean there aren't some of us here probably of Jewish descent, but there's a lot of Gentiles here. So we too are in this heritage of Gentiles as a part of the revealed mystery of God. When God looks at us, He sees His secret weapon. This is the best way I know how to describe what Paul means by God's mystery here. He's saying you are God's secret weapon. You are the new people of God, not defined by one ethnicity or a diet or a culture, but by faith in the risen Jesus, and that this revelation is like God's trick play to start the second half of the game. And I promise that's the last football analogy that I'll give. But it, it changes the geometry of the game. Remember with me, in a very real sense, starting all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, the third chapter of the whole Bible, where everything starts, right? In those first three chapters, God has been at war with evil in the world. It starts all the way back there. God's good world is tarnished by sin, and God looks at the serpent who deceived and tempted Adam and Eve to invite sin and death into the world, which God never intended. And if you remember, God looks at that serpent and says, you and me, you're going to fight me, and I'm going to defeat you. It's a promise he makes all the way back in Genesis 3. There's a war going on, and God has been at work redeeming his world since that moment. It starts in Genesis 3. But in Jesus and the church, these are like God's D-Day in the war. They are the decisive turning point that takes the enemy completely by surprise. He's caught off guard and unaware, and he's now in full retreat. Okay, we are God's secret weapon, even though we are absolutely a mess. <laughs> and it's so funny to me, because Paul's saying all this stuff to these Christians and to us today, and if you were to read the rest of Ephesians, especially beginning in chapter 4 and on, you're going to see that these little house churches, they've got problems. They often look too comfortable in the pagan world that surrounds them. They often don't love each other the way that they ought to. They are not unified the way Jesus designed them to be. They're still a huge mess. And hey, get this, we are too. We are still a huge mess. And God's still working on us and through us, through our conflicts and our disagreements and all, our dysfunction, all of it. But when God looks at us, before he sees the mess or the issues or the struggles, the conflicts, when God looks at his people before he sees anything else, he sees his secret weapon that's turning the tide of history, that's changing everything. But not only that, okay, look at verse 7. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ 
and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So Paul describes again for the Ephesians his unique calling to the Gentiles, which again you can read about in the book of Acts, and essentially the book of Acts is a history of the early church, and most of that history is about the craziness of what the gospel does in the Gentile world. That's most of what Acts is about. But here in verse 10, Paul says why this mystery revealed matters so much. What is it doing? The secret weapon is unleashed in order to show the manifold wisdom of God. This is the language Paul uses, to show the manifold wisdom of God. But God is not content to show this wisdom, to show this plan to you and me alone, or even to the whole world, which he has done. Paul says God wants to show his wisdom to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Now, here we're treading on a concept that I think is very difficult for us modern Western people to wrap our minds around and understand and perhaps even accept. And a big part of that we need to acknowledge is not necessarily because we have an intellectual problem with the idea of a spiritual realm, but because we swim in waters that don't talk about that. We live in a very materialistic culture. And by that, I mean we tend to put the most credibility into things we can see and touch and hear and taste and smell with our senses. We have to acknowledge that our culture, our materialistic culture, is actually a very unique way. That's a very unique way of looking at the world throughout history. Most of human people have not looked at the world that way. Uh, and we need to acknowledge that, that even today, in terms of population and influence, that most of the world does not most of humanity does not see reality that way either, even now. And here's what I'll say. In the biblical worldview, there are um, spiritual beings. And I don't think that that's too hard for us to wrap our minds around if we kind of give it a fair shake, because we see a depth of evil in the world that's hard to explain. And we see unexpected moments of healing or joy or grace or protection that are hard to explain as well. It's not hard to imagine that there are powers in, that we cannot see who nudge our experience or who nudge human history this way or that along the way. What, what Paul says is that it is for these powers, be they good or bad, be they angels or demons, to whom the church speaks God's ultimate wisdom and his brilliance and his magnificence. Or to put this another way, when the universe, when the entire spiritual realm, angel, demon, anything and everything in between, when the created order, all things made by God's hands, when it reckons with the brilliance of the creator God, when everything that has its breath from God considers the wonders his hand hath wrought, as the old hymn puts it, it is not to the stars or the heavens or the atoms or the depths or the expanses to which God points to demonstrate his power or his excellence or his unsurpassable wisdom. When God wants to show everything his wisdom, he points to us, points to you and me and churches just like ours all over the world right now today. And that's really hard to believe. 
You may even find that impossible to leave to believe today, but it's true. It's true. When God looks at us, more than anything else he has done in all creation, he sees his ultimate wisdom on display. We are like his magnum opus. We are his Sistine Chapel. We are his Beethoven's fifth, his masterpiece, his masterpiece on display for all time. When you say yes to Jesus, you become a thread in the manifold wisdom of God. That word manifold is actually an artistic term. It's like a tapestry or a kaleidoscope of beautiful wisdom pulled together that when you actually see the whole, puts the entire cosmos on notice that God is doing something new. Which means that, think about that, when we gather with our community groups this week, which many of us are doing starting this week, which are from the outside looking in are just a random group of people in living rooms all over Kansas City. When we come to class and we talk about the Bible on Tuesday nights or Wednesday or Thursday mornings, when we pray together and sing together for an hour on Sunday, when we hold crying babies so that parents can worship, or when we lead our youth on Wednesday nights, when we host a potluck and we trip the breakers in this building because there's too many crockpots plugged in at the same time, and yes, when we go to school and to work and service in our neighborhoods together in Jesus' name, Paul says what we are actually doing is demonstrating to the angelic realm that God and God alone is wise. That's what we're doing. And when God looks at us, he sees his most brilliant work of art. And this is foolishness to the world. Fool, this is what Paul, Paul uses that word in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He says the wisdom of God is foolishness to the world. Which, which by that he means when the world looks at us, and that, that is the authorities and the powers of this age, when they look at God's plan in his people, it is an absolute head-scratcher. It makes no sense at all. It is almost offensive in its audacity. But Paul makes clear that the more foolish the church appears to the world, the more foolish in its grace, in its service, in its forgiveness, in its acceptance, in its diversity, in its humility, the more compelling it becomes. And the more the wisdom of God is actually put on display. And that's not even the craziest thing that Paul says about who we are in God's eyes. I don't know if you noticed this because I buried the lead a little bit, but Paul is writing this letter from prison. That's verse 1. Paul says, I'm a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and he means that literally. That's not a metaphor. He's literally a prisoner at this time. There's some debate about where Paul is in prison at this moment. I think it's, find it pretty convincing that he's in Rome in prison at this time, awaiting trial, which is described at the end of the book of Acts. Either way, anyway, don't miss this. Some dude in a Roman halfway house, literally under house arrest, under Roman guard, is writing a letter to what is essentially a drop in the ocean that is the population of Ephesus, one of the biggest cities at this time. And he is so excited about that. He's like, wow, you guys, look at how God is winning. Look at the power of Jesus. Here I am. I'm in jail. You're barely hanging on. Won't he do it? Look at God. 
Paul, Paul doesn't use the word victory here in this passage, but it is everywhere implied. In fact, you can read the entire letter of Ephesians as the victory of Jesus over all things, his supremacy over all things, and that victory is through his church. We are the victory of God, even when and perhaps especially when it looks and feels anything like victory. Paul says, yes, you are the victory of God, and it is the sloppiest, messiest, lamest-looking victory imaginable from a human standpoint. It, it truly is. It's, it's a victory that often looks like persecution. It looks like suffering. It looks like loss. It looks like marginalization and ridicule, imprisonment. It's a victory that looks like repentance, saying sorry a lot, giving up preferences, laying down our comforts, not getting our way, forgiving and loving even our worst enemies. It's a victory that looks like carrying a cross, a symbol of death, embracing a crucified Messiah, and picking up the basin and towel of, of service, of foot washing, instead of the sword and the spear of war. That's what that victory looks like. It's a victory that looks like defeat. It, it truly does. But it's working. And for 2,000 years, for 2,000 years, if you were to read the historical analysis from those outside the church looking in, what you'll find pretty consistently is that the movement we call the church has been on its last legs for 2,000 years. <laughs> it's going to burn out. It's not going to make it. And to be clear, there have been times where the church has lost her way. That is true. Where she has looked too comfortable in the world, has forgotten the mystery of God made known in weakness and service and love. She has struggled, no doubt, but by God's grace, she has never failed. Empires have come and gone. But the prayer groups and the Bible studies and the potlucks, they're still here. Paul must have looked crazy. Just imagine with me, he's in this house and he's, there's literally a guard that has to watch him all day to make sure he doesn't try to escape. I imagine his Roman guard would look over at Paul and probably in the, in the dead of night, shaking his head and laughing as Paul scribbles and labors over the countless letters that he's writing from prison to a bunch of nobodies scattered all over the Roman Empire. Okay, his writing hand is literally in chains. He references that. Remember my chains, he says in some of his letters. And he's, and imagine this Roman guard laughing. But who's laughing now? This is why Paul can say at the end of this passage here, verse 13, so I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. When God looks at us, he sees something that we often forget, sometimes that we lose sight of along the way. But Paul says, see yourselves as God sees you. And don't lose heart. Don't lose heart. Because even you and I, in our low moments, we doubt what God is doing. I cannot tell you how many conversations I've had, or especially over the last two years, of people saying, I'm disappointed in the church. I understand that. I do. 
Sometimes we go to God and we say, listen, God, I'm human. I'm a mess. This church thing is weird. And that guy over there drives me nuts with everything he says. God, we cannot do this. This doesn't work. And God says, oh, you're right. You can't do this. But I can do it. And church, he, he has done it. Think, think with me for a moment what God is doing all over the world. The fastest growing church in the world, as far as we can tell, it's really hard to get numbers, is also the most heavily persecuted church in the world in Iran and Afghanistan. Fastest growing church in the world. When Christianity confronts, to this day, the caste system in India, you know where it spreads the fastest? It spreads the fastest among the Dalit, the untouchable, the lower classes, lower castes, who, who currently make up more than half of the Indian Christians in that country. And yes, things are changing in the Western world. That's kind of the water we swim in. And the church is perhaps not as influential as she once was, at least from a human standpoint. But we know, we know what God can do and has done and is doing in the world God has always chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. He chooses what is weak in the world to shame the strong. He chooses what makes no lick of earthly sense to us, to demonstrate to every power in the earth and above the earth and below it that Jesus Christ is Lord. If we doubt what God can do with His church, with Christ's community, It is because we have not considered and remembered what he's already done and what he's already doing. We may lose influence as cultures change. We may lose people who consider the way of Jesus too foolish and too costly. We may lose opportunity and income and popularity. Jesus himself warned us that we may lose family and friends for his sake, but we do not lose heart. Because Jesus has overcome the world and his movement of redeemed and rescued people from every tongue, tribe, and nation cannot be stopped, even in a prison cell. In fact, that seems to be where it does its best work. Let's pray to to King Jesus now. Jesus, whatever doubts or frustrations we bring today, whatever apathy we bring, indifference to our calling in this story, to our our thread in the tapestry that you are pulling together, show us once again the wisdom of your plan, the beauty of your call in our lives, and the power of what you can do through the weakest of vessels. Use us, Father, for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.